like you'd open once again to the book of Ephesians. What a book. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. Our title is called Growing into Full Stature. This is a little series about growing, about what all Christians are called to do. Along with everything else, we are called primarily to grow, to go from infancy to adulthood spiritually. I don't think all Christians do that. I don't think that they do, but I think we're supposed to. In Ephesians 4, verse 13, Paul writes, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is ahead, even Christ. It would be hard to escape even with a casual reading of those two verses the fact that God wants us to grow. And it also would be hard not to see that you cannot grow spiritually unless you know something. Again in verse 13, till we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. When Jesus said to us, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, there's something really significant about that because we cannot be like him unless we learn about him. And you really can't learn anything about him unless God shows it to you. Like God said to Jeremiah, canst thou by much searching find out God? You could look and search the rest of your life. But you won't find anything until God, as the psalmist said, opens your eyes to behold things. That's the way it works. But we're here because in honoring God to gather together as Christians and to study the word, we really want to know what all of this means and how I can grow myself, how you can grow, how we can become what we're supposed to be spiritually. The easiest thing for all of us to do as Christians is to get busy and do something. We like to do things and make things and build things and be active in the community because everybody can see that and they can give your praise and your reward now about how big and wonderful everything is getting, but they can't see you growing unless they're around you all the time. They can't see the transition from an old way you used to act and talk to a new way that's come into your life. They just drive by and either you're busy or you're not, and you're in a little dumpy building like this, or you're in some big cathedral of yesterday. But God sees the hearts. You can be sure that God is looking at your heart and my heart tonight. And he wants to see us like Christ, because he says to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. What is full stature? Well, one version of the Bible quotes a part of verse 13 by saying, until we reach the ideal man, until we reach, we grow until we reach the ideal man, the full standard of the perfection of the Christ. That's a lofty goal, isn't it? To grow up unto him in all things. We usually step back and say, nobody can do that, and so we don't try to, even though the Bible tells us we're supposed to. Our mind has seemed to be thinking of things in human terms and not in godly terms, and we just don't see ourselves as able to do that, like the word perfect. It doesn't mean without flaw, without the possibility of you ever sinning. The word perfect there is a Greek word, teleos. It means to reach your full and intended end. It means maturity. It means a full stature, full age, grown up, in other words, from something to something. This is what we're called to do along with everything else that goes on in our life. We're to grow up into him from glory to glory to glory to glory. Thought of two things this week we didn't mention last week. Two things that will evidence a crowd of people, a crowd of Christians who aren't growing. Two things that stand out in the scriptures when you're not growing and you're not maturing. You're just a church member, and that's about the limit of it. Let me show them to you real quick. First Corinthians, if you go back to the left a couple of books, you go to First Corinthians 3, verse 1. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, 
spiritual men or spiritual people, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, the word babes there is a reference to the fact that you're still like you were when you got saved. You still have a tendency towards carnality. All babes do. All little children do. They haven't learned this way of growing up yet, so they just act the way they feel. They respond with how they feel. They don't restrain much of their lives at all. And Paul said, I couldn't speak to you as I would unto spiritual men. He said, for you're all carnal. How many of you know that wouldn't sell very many tapes? Wouldn't get a lot of invitations talking like that, but he wasn't in it for all of that. And he said in verse two, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you now able to bear it. For you're carnal. For where there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as mere men? Because of the use of the word babes, we could say this, babyhood is the cause of dissension. Now we know the scoffers are involved in backbiting and all of that, but that's because people never grew up. I could say to you tonight, it'd be an unpopular statement, but I could say that churches are full because I was in one once like that. Churches are full of people that are committed to a system, but they've never grown up. They're easily ticked off. They're very thin-skinned. They're very opinionated and they're very mouthy because they haven't grown up. Children are like that. And so babyhood leads to dissension. Well, babyhood also leads to deception. It's easy to be deceived if you're not growing. If you don't know the right things to know, it's easy to be uncertain and believe just whatever you want to. You remember we were in Ephesians 4 a while ago. I skipped the 13th verse. This is what the 13th verse said, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. He said that we henceforth be no longer children. You see the word children there in verse 13, if you're there? Ephesians 4, 13, till we be no longer children. 14, it's a reference to those that aren't growing. That we be no more like children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sly of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. No, sir, the Bible says we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. But if all we ever get is just the milk of the word, If all I ever preach to you every Sunday is how to be saved, how to be saved, how to be saved, merits of salvation, how to be saved. You need to preach that because that's that's the main theme of the Bible. But if that's all you ever preach, then mostly all you ever preach is milky. Remember Hebrews 5 and verse 11? He said, I could not declare unto you some things I'd like to declare. He said, because you haven't matured. You remember Hebrews 5 verse 11? He said this. He said, the time come that you ought to be teachers. That means you've grown up from not knowing much to able to explain things. Time come that you ought to be teachers. You have need again. You still have a need that somebody declare unto you or teach you which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And it becomes such that need milk and not meat. For they that use milk only are unskillful in the word of righteousness. We shouldn't be. We should be skillful. That means we're growing. That means that we're getting it together, starting to come together. Pieces are coming in place. The picture is getting clear. You're beginning to see something in a way that most people don't see it, but somebody's going to see it. And what you see is God's going to show it to you is going to have an effect upon your life. You're going to grow. Remember 2 Corinthians 3? As we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. Folks, if we're growing, that will happen. And when that happens and you begin to grow into that image, you'll begin to see what Christianity is all about and what the meaning and purpose of it is. It's not to do something for God. It's never been doing something for God. We'll get to that more in just a minute. It has always been to do what God wants you to do and to be what God wants you to be. We can't impress God with anything that we do. But what he's pleased with is when you have responded to him in your life and he can say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, Matthew 25. That's what he wants to say to us. 
So as these pieces of this knowledge, a little bit here, a little bit there, here, a little there, as God begins to put pieces together in our life, and we keep availing ourselves to hearing the word and keep desiring to know, not just to hear, but to know. You got to hear, but you want you to know. Then you begin to be transformed into that same image. I think it's a wonderful picture. I think it's a wonderful story that's in the Bible. Last week now, from John chapter 12, we talked about the principle of growth. And Jesus, in referring to that last week in John chapter 12 and verse 24, he said, if a corn of wheat, I'm not sure what a corn of wheat is, but I know what a grain of wheat or a grain of corn is. I think that's what he's talking about. Verily I say, do you accept a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die? It abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So here we have the lesson, just one verse, but a profound verse. Because Jesus said, a corn of wheat laying anywhere in a sack, on a mantle, anywhere you want to put, it does nothing. But there is something living in every grain of anything. How many know there is something living in a grain of wheat? Doesn't look like it, does it? It's laying there by itself and it looks dead. But it's able to make life. Not by itself. But if you plant it, if it falls into the ground and the death-dealing effects of nature, the rotting away of that outer core and the coming forth, when all of those kind of forces, that pressure we would call it, tribulation, trouble, that's another sermon, but when those pressures begin to work on that grain of corn, it has life in it. And it's able to reproduce an exact representation of itself, which is what this story's about, this whole thing about growth. For Christ to live in me is for Christ to be reproduced in me. But it has to be Christ. But that grain of wheat, that corn of wheat that he speaks about here, he said, except it fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies... It reproduces. And Christianity today, we are to be an expression of the reproductive work of the Spirit to bring forth Christ in us. The image, the likeness, likeness of Christ. We all look different. We're all different and all of that. But the spirit of life in us, each one of us is the same. I'll tell you this. The Jesus that's in you is no different than the Jesus that's in me. The same Jesus does the same kind of work in all of us. And what is expressed through us is an expression of him. Paul said one time, I labor for you all until Christ be formed in you. Now he's not bearing fruit yet, but there has to be the forming, the taking root of Christ in you. Have you know that when you're born again, you're not born again of a corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible seed of the word of God that abides in you. A seed that when it's planted and it germinates, it comes forth. It should be, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the way it's supposed to be. But instead of the world seeing that, they see us fight and fuss and divide and get angry and protest. I think it's a shame that so many churches get involved and who they're going to vote for. Because all it leads to is division. One brother, one sister against another brother. This is Democrat, that one's Republican or Independent or whatever. And they begin to take sides. And the church preaches that it's our duty and responsibility to, to what? Divide ourselves? We all believe that who we're voting for is God's will and one of us is wrong. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what our motive and motivation in this world is. We're not here to feed this world. We're not even here to make it a better place to live. We're put in this world by the will of God as light shining in this world. Light that gives hope to the lost. They should by our lives see the fruit of Christ in us. And we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us the reason of the hope that is within us. 
and we should be able to tell them it's Jesus. We really should study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman, and so forth. We really should. It's just what Jesus Christ is doing in his people. It's John 6, 29. This is the will of God that you may believe. Not have the winning vote, but that you might believe. Now, what is a corn of wheat? Back to where I was at a moment ago. What exactly is a corn of wheat? Well, it is a seed which has life in it. Now, if Christ is planted in your heart like a seed, then there is divine life in that seed, able to reproduce itself if you yield to it. Amen? And what should come forth from this seed is Christ's likeness. There should be evidence in our life that this seed within us is living and growing. You know, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. Remember that? We are to present ourselves on an altar every day, a sacrifice unto God. Because that brought us to where we were last week about the cross. We're going to a place called heaven, which is our position. We're down here on this earth in various stages. We call it our condition. It varies. This is the most changeable thing in our life where we are right now, but your heavenly position never will change. And we're growing and we're growing. And as God feeds us on his word, we're supposed to grow. Now, this journey upward always has in it a cross. The Bible speaks of the cross like this in Matthew 10 and Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In different books, he says it two ways. You're not worthy of me, and you cannot be my disciple. I think it's a lost message in the church. We equate the cross with something you wear around your neck. As you put it on the front of a church or somewhere. But it is a symbol of Christianity, too, because it was where our redemption was gained at the cross. But it was also a place of agony. It was a place of death. And more than anything, it represents death out of which and from which came life. And that's what growing is all about, is going from one thing to something else. But Jesus said, whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. And then he said in Matthew 16, for what is a man profited if he gained the whole world, if his whole life is centered around you, what you can make of yourself, or if you're a church member somewhere and you want to honor God and you think of things to do that we can honor God. And so we develop ideas and places to go or things to do or wonderful things that benefit people. And this is how we're going to honor God. That's what religious man does. And again, I'm not saying that we don't honor God in doing a lot of things of that sort, but what he wants us to realize is that in your earthly condition down here, until you are growing up and you're submitting yourself to the death on this cross yourself, you're mostly carnal in what you do. Nobody said you were ugly and bad about it. To sacrifice money and give up time and so forth is a noble thing to do. But we cannot do anything for God that will impress him outside of doing what he wants us to do. His will. He says it like this. Unless you take up this cross every day to follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And if you don't deny yourself, because that's the problem itself, me, it just hates to die. Doesn't want to change. Likes the admiration of people, the applause of people, the notice of people, the recognition of everybody. We just like to be able to just beat people to the punch and do things and just be noted for all of that. And Jesus said, that's your reward in this life, the applause of people. But I want you to take all your noble ideas. I just want you to go to the cross and I want you to die. I want you to give up rights to yourself. 
want you to take self to the cross and realize the reason we argue, fight, fuss, and throw fits is because of self-centeredness. We're easily offended by each other. We don't like each other a lot of times, and so we say things about each other. We do things we shouldn't do, and we don't act like Christians. It's because we've kind of set Jesus aside here, and we've made Christianity our own little world. We're going to design it and decorate it and develop it the way we think it ought to be done in a community. Somebody said there's like 600 different kinds of churches in the world. We've divided him up by fighting and fussing and getting angry and splitting off. We've gone 600 different directions. Now, 599 of them are surely wrong. The chance of you sitting down with anybody and saying, now, what you're doing isn't right. My dad was a Catholic. Now, my chances of sitting down with my dad and say, Dad, Catholicism is not right are nil, zero. Because he had already convinced himself that's what he wants. That's the way his mother and dad did it, and they did it. My granny was an ultra-Catholic, ultra-mega-Catholic. And so that's all he ever knew, and that's all he ever wanted. It cost nothing. It didn't require anything except go to church, do that. That's all there was, and, and he didn't want to talk about it. They told him not to read his Bible. He didn't study. He knew nothing about God. Went to church his whole life, and all he knew was Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and so forth. He didn't know much about Jesus except what a priest told him. So his life was spent with drinking and cussing and being a good old boy. My dad was a good old boy. Everybody liked him. He was a good old boy. But he didn't know the Lord. And why should he? Nobody told him he needed to. There was never a big deal made of that. Church was a place you performed the same ritual every time you go. It's a place where a priest in his homily or his little speech, a little five-minute sermonette, has absolutely no effect at all. And every single time you go to church, you do the exact same thing with the same little set of beads, everything the same way, and you never, ever change it. Now, there is no way you can grow up spiritually doing that. There's not a secret place in this world you can go and grow up acting like that, doing that as a religion. But man has devised that. He came up with that. In Revelation 3, it talks about Nicolaitans. You remember that? Nicolai to control and laitans, laity we get today, the people. To control the people, and it does. Religious systems today control people. You dare not say a thing against it or try to change it. If you went back to the Christian church I grew up in Indiana and tried to change that, you'd find out how quick they change you from the warmth of the inside to the cold of the outside. It wouldn't work because man by nature is a fleshly person a carnal person, he lives by high fields and what he thinks and what his opinion is. And to disagree with him is to make an enemy. I don't care what church, I don't care what church he goes to. This is just the nature of the beast. And God brings people just like that. I was just like that. He brings us all together. He begins to tell us slowly but surely, all of that's wrong. You got to give up your rights to proving yourself right and trying to make everybody see it your way and hammer Give it up. Whatever happened to kindness and meekness and gentleness and peace, the fruit of the seed inside coming out. Whatever happened to the turning of the cheek and a soft-spoken word? Boy, you don't see much of that today because that's not fleshly man. But if we're going to grow, if we're going to grow up and be the way Christ wants us to do, we're going to have to bear a cross. And a cross is in type. It's a place where I and God clash. It's a place where the way I want to do something is not the way he said it. And at that point, the cross is designed for me to die to my way so that I can live his way. I may not like it, but I do it because there is no other right way to do things. 
How many know that Jesus put forth to his disciples when they came to him, he put forth decision time. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Christ? He said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the scripture say? He said, well, it says, honor your mother and your father and God and all of And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. So he was busy. He did things. He satisfied himself in what he did. And therefore, is there anything I'm leaving out? And Jesus said, well, there's one more thing. What, sir? He said, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then you come follow me. The Bible says, you know, the man having thought about that, the pictures that must have raced through his mind and he was seeing where this was going and he probably couldn't make the connection because he was so zeroed in on how he figured it out. He couldn't make the connection that how could that have anything to do with me being saved? And so he felt probably disappointed. That's all Christ had to say to him. So he turned and he was disappointed and he walked away. Because it just couldn't register. He wasn't open. Jesus said, you know, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom. It doesn't mean you can't have a lot. Zacchaeus had a bunch, had more than any of us. Remember Zacchaeus, the little fellow? Climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to eat in your house today. I want to go to your house and eat, have dinner. And Zacchaeus said, Lord, whatever I have robbed and stole from people, I'm going to give it back X amount of times. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house. He didn't say, no, 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 you got to give it all up. He just said, you know, you've lost your affection for it. You're willing to let go of it. And today salvation has come to your house. Amen. So. You've got to bear a cross. There has got to be that time in your life when you don't yell at the car in front of you. You don't get on the horn. And I'm working on this myself. Not the horn part, but the verbal part. Because there's so many people that don't know that when the light turns green, they're supposed to move forward. And you're in a hurry and you're... And you say a little bit. Then they move. They must have heard you. All of that stuff must be brought to the surface and said, Jesus, look at this problem here. Look what I just did, Lord. Look what I just said. Jesus said, you need to crucify that. What do you mean crucify it? Put it on the cross. Die to it. Tell yourself, no longer are you going to do this. There must be a restraint of putting to death of how you feel about things. Children that sass and pout and throw fits are the epitome of carnality. I don't care if they go to church or not. This is what human beings are like. We're all like that. And until we begin to make application of what God said and suppress and crucify and deny ourselves, we will never change. So let me give you a second principle tonight. Turn to John chapter 15, a second principle of growth. And that's the vine and the branches. I think everybody is familiar with the vine and the branches in Scripture. John chapter 15 and verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, with all your good ideas, without me, you can do nothing. And verse 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father, in my name, he'll give it to you. You see in those verses there the idea of fruit. And I think it's in verse 8 also, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so forth, and so shall you be my disciples. Now, if I ask you tonight, among the many things said about disciples, what is it that disciples 
specifically do from verse 8? We bear fruit. Is that right? That'd be interesting if everybody would just answer for themselves, satisfy themselves. What is biblical fruit? We know what fruit in this world is. Apple trees, apples, grapevines, peach trees, and so forth. Jesus used the illustration. You can tell what kind of a tree you're dealing with by the kind of fruit that's on it. The trees were made to produce fruit. This is how they're made. And every tree that produces fruit also produces a seed in that fruit. Sometimes they fall to the ground and another tree springs up because that's life out of death. And so... Every branch, Jesus said, in me that bringeth not forth fruit is broken off and thrown into the fire. Now, I have to come to this conclusion in my Christian life if I'm going to read John 15. If I'm going to call myself a disciple of Jesus, I have to be a fruit bearer. I have to bear, as he said, whatever it means, I have to bear fruit. And that the reason he called me out of darkness and chose me to be his, I didn't choose him. He chose me. The reason he did, among other things, is so that I might go and bring forth fruit. For he also said that in the bringing forth of fruit, we glorify God. He is manifested in our fruit and he is glorified in our fruit. Now, several things are clear in this. One the vine is the source of life. You know that. The vine is the only source of life. There is no other source of life that a branch can turn to. That's the only source there is. And the vine, clearly, Jesus said, I am the vine. So there is only one source of life in this world that can bear fruit. There is only one source from which fruit can come, and that's Jesus, okay? Unless he bears the fruit through us, then the fruit is unacceptable. Now, man is offended by that because, again, we do a lot of things and we look at it and we say, look what I have done for the Lord. And we spent a lot of money on it, a lot of time on it, and we tell ourselves, and maybe we did. Maybe that's why we did. We did this for the Lord. Now, we're carnal. We don't get along well, but we can do things. But Jesus said what he's looking for is fruit. And here's the way it works. It is the design of the vine to cause life to flow into this branch. It comes in and it brings life. Why then do not all Christians bear fruit unto the Lord? A branch can do nothing of itself, can it? If you cut the source of life off and you glue this thing to the tree, what would happen to a branch? What happened if you went out to an apple tree and in the springtime you went out there and got one of them pretty green twigs or branches about the and you broke the thing off or snipped it off and brought it in the house and laid it on, look at here. I'm going to watch that thing make some apples. Will it? See, here's the principle. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. So neither can you, neither can we. No matter how noble it seems, we cannot. The only acceptable fruit unto God is the fruit which comes from the source. And now those fruits are mentioned more than once in the Bible. But in principle, you've got to realize that unless Christ bears fruit through us, we can't bear fruit. Out here is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, and meekness, and all these other things. See, the fruit gives evidence to the source that it came from. Put your finger in John 15 and go to Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren... Ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, where does the fruit come from? Well, it comes from Christ. Verse 5, for when you were in the flesh, 
the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What exactly is he talking about? What do you mean by fruit unto death? It was the things you did. The cussing, the drinking, the anger, the uncleanness, the things that we did for ourselves that had nothing to do with God, the fun that we had, most of it. The Bible says these were the motions of sin. Sin was bearing fruit. I can't speak for the rest of you. I can only speak for myself. It was very evident in Charlestown, Indiana, that the little Hamilton boy was a sinner. Yes, it was, too. That the Hamilton boy is a sinner. How do you know he was a sinner? I can listen to him. I can watch him. I can tell by where he runs and who he runs with and how they run at night and play. I can tell by just those things that this boy is by definition a sinner. I don't know if they could do that to you all or not. Probably a couple of you they could. That this guy, this girl is a sinner. Because what she does, how he talks, the things that they do bear witness or fruit to what they are on the inside. Do you hear me? On the inside, I have a dark spirit. The Bible said I am dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 talks about the nature of disobedience is in me. It's a devil. And the devil would prompt me to do things. He couldn't prompt me to kill myself because I wouldn't do that. He cannot make me do things that I'm unwilling to do. That's why training of children when they're small is so important. But he could prompt me to do this. Everybody else is doing it. Why don't you do it? Well, I don't want to be left out and I don't want people talking about me. I don't want to be a chicken or a coward or whatever. So I jump in and do it too. But that's what sin does. It misleads us. It compels us to do things that maybe we know we shouldn't do. Even the Bible says, he that knoweth to do good, but doesn't do it, to that person it is sin. You don't have to tell a sinner that he's a sinner. A sinner knows that he or she is a sinner. I'd sit in church all those Sundays I grew up going to Sunday school, because I had to. I'd sit in church every Sunday morning. And I was just reminded every week how lost I was. I went to college and got sick, and I thought I was dying. I think I was. Coughing up blood. It was just a bad time. And yet I'd go to church and I'd hear them talk about things, but inside of me there was just this dark thing that says, there's no way it'll work for you. You can't do it. And I willed then not to. I would not respond to God because I was convinced that I could not. The motions of sin worked inside of me and kept me in a carnal state, a carnal, gloomy, desperate, grieving state. Childhood's supposed to be a lot of fun and all that. I think some of those younger years of my life, it was a difficult time. But it should be until Jesus comes. Nobody here does as well as you can until Christ comes in your life because that's the only way you get relief from all this junk in your life. But the motions of sin, as he said in verse 5, is what bears fruit. And everybody knew you were a sinner because you can tell a tree by its fruit. Look in chapter 6, just across the page there in chapter 6 and verse 20. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you're now ashamed? Now, any of you in here, all of you that have been born again, I know it's all under the blood and we're all forgiven. But does the devil ever try to throw that stuff back in your face to make you ashamed? Sure, you have a flashback. The devil's a tempter. It wasn't your idea to do that. As the devil brings that stuff to your mind to condemn you, to keep you from enjoying life or the church or something. And oh, he brings back some scene from yesteryear, something ugly thing you've been forgiven of. And you're ashamed. I don't know all the things that was going on in my mind that morning that I got saved, but one of the things was, is just as I am was playing in verse one, my whole life flashed by. I was so ashamed of myself. 
I'm standing in church. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't even be in here. I can play this Christian churchy role as good as anybody in the world. And yet there was nothing but darkness inside of me. Darkness. I'm talking about lots of just darkness. That morning that God prompted me to come forward, to go up there and receive Christ. All I can say is when Bonnie went forward that morning and she wanted to get out and I stepped back, she needed to go forward. Y'all didn't know that, but she needed to. So she went up there and when I switched my feet from my right side to my left side, it just kept on going. I got myself out in the aisle and I went up there that day and I've never looked back since. I remember the torment. I don't mean I was in some institution, but I mean there was this personal torment about my sins. I couldn't hide it. I could not sin. Couldn't wait sometimes to get home. All my buddies in the spring, they all got out of college, and we go out and read the Bible together. <laughs> and know you're wrong. And know you're wrong. And you did it anyway because sin does that to you. You treat people wrong. You talk ugly to people. You cheat people. You lie to people. You steal. You do whatever you can to spare yourself because that's what sin does to us. That's what it did to all of us. And Romans chapter 6 again in verse 20 said, What fruit had you in those things whereof you now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And I knew it was dying. But now, being made free from sin, praise God. Now notice, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and in the end, everlasting life. Let me ask you all a question. All you young folks, there are a lot of young people here. Should I not be able to see godly fruit in your life if you confess that you're a Christian? Shouldn't it show up? In fact, if you acted like a sinner acted, we'd have to talk to you because we don't do that anymore. That old man has died. He died. He went into the ground and died. It's what water baptism. We are buried with Christ into his death. Because when Jesus died on the cross, I died. Because I was marked out for salvation before the foundation of the world. But I came to this world a sinner. Every sinner needs to be saved. Jesus went to the cross so that could be taken care of. And when he died, I died. When God raised him from the dead, I was raised from the dead. Old things were passed away. My sins were washed away. I became a new creature in Christ. There's got to be fruit. And there is none unless the knowledge you once had is changed. Didn't Paul say this in Romans 12 and verse 2? Be not fashioned according to this world. But did he not begin by saying you've got to present your body as a living Sacrifice, every day is like I am dedicated to God. I wouldn't even know what that means unless somebody taught me what that meant and showed me that in the Bible so I could read it and get convicted about it. I said, you present your body every day as a living sacrifice unto God, holy. It's your reasonable service. And be not fashioned according to this world that you tried so hard to run with but be transformed by the renewing of your mind as a Christian so that you can prove what the will of God is because that is what will bear fruit pleasing unto God. And every time I don't want to, no, I don't want you die, you crucified, and you live because out of death comes life. That's the principle. And this picture of the vine you were a dead branch. You were good for nothing but to be broken off and to keep somebody warm until you're ashes. And by the great mercy, and as my Irish friends would say, by the great grace of God, he brought you to himself and gives you life for one purpose, for one reason, and for one goal, so that he, Jesus, can express himself through all these parts of your life. He doesn't want you to see how much now that Jesus has come into your life. What can you do for me now? He wants you to die. 
He wants you to give up rights to yourself. Yield yourself as a living sacrifice unto God so that God can begin to bring forth love where there was once hate. And bring forth peace where there was once in your face anger. And where you were once pretty mad. Well, I'll tell you what I think, brother. We used to say Jack, but everybody quit saying Jack. Instead of when you feel like doing that, you say, this is not what Jesus would do. Do people still wear that little bracelet that said WWJD? What does WWJD mean? What would Jesus do? Jesus would jump out of the car and tell somebody how old they are. Yell at a ball game, kill the umpire, boo! That's what Jesus would do. No, if you do that, take that bracelet off. At least be honest. I don't care what you call yourself or where you go to church or what kind of youth movement you got into. Don't come back to this real world and act like a heathen. Live it. Live it up when you're by yourself alone in your house, in your room. If you cop an attitude because mom and dad said you need to clean up your room, you need to go to the cross. You sorry little thing. You're welcome. You need to go to the cross. Because that's not what Jesus would have you do, is it? Somebody said something about you that wasn't true, so you go to them. Did you say that? And they get in your face and let you have it. What are you supposed to do? Put one across the chops? Just walk away. You know what Jesus did? Like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. An example for all of us to follow. This is fruit. This kind of action evidences the life that you're governed by. The life inside of you is not the old you because the old you would have done this, but the new you says, praise the Lord, because you are crucifying the old way because that's totally unacceptable to God. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are dead to sins, you're alive unto God, and you're supposed to live that way. Turn to Romans 8. You're close to it. Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 13. What a marvelous chapter. Boy, you're in the middle of some really, really good stuff. Romans 8 and verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. What does that mean? But I go to church. I've been baptized in water five times. I've been spit on, sprinkled. I've had the whole gambit. What does it say? If you live after your flesh, what will happen to you? But Jesus, 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 whoa, whoa, time out, time out. Lord, look, we prophesied to people. We cast out demons. We worked miracles. And what did he say? I never knew you. You're workers of iniquity. You're going to die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Mortify means put to death because the principle is out of death comes life, the kind of life that God wants us to have. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Folks, bearing fruit unto God is a process. It's a process. It takes time. It doesn't instantly come. Psalm 1 talks about if a man will not sit, stand, and walk in all of these sinful kind of people, it says in verse 2, his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be. What shall he be like? He shall be like who? The person who turns away from sin and makes the right decisions, no matter how unpopular they are, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to go that way. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He said his leaf shall not fade. He always bears fruit in his season. It takes time because the word season is a length of time. And when you plant that seed, you've got to give it a chance to grow. 
Sometimes it doesn't look like it's growing. You've been going to church for a whole year now and you don't seem to still be struggling about some things. You keep dying. You keep putting this cross in your life and you keep suppressing and mortifying the deeds of your flesh. And you prove yourself to God that you're serious about this. And he knows your heart anyway, but you need to know it. You prove yourself to God and he will then begin to do a work in you. But this is what a man who is godly does. In Psalm 1-4, he said, the ungodly are not so. Look in Luke chapter 8. In as much as we're studying the Bible, look in Luke chapter 8 and verse 15. And see for yourself. Talks about fruit here. But that on the good ground, we know this parable of the sower and the seed. I think verse 11 says the word of God is the seed. Yes, in the same book. The word of God is the seed that is being sown. And verse 15, but that which is on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Does your Bible say that? Now, it seems like in the parable, the sower and the seed, ultimately the only people that are going to be fruit bearers and bear fruit unto God, which glorifies God, but he said in John 15, in this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. Well, the fruit he's talking about is the life that he has to give you that he wants to express through you. That's fruit. All the things that would exemplify the way Jesus would handle a situation or deal with something is fruit. That's what he wants. And he says here, the only people that are going to bear fruit are those who have, first of all, an honest heart. And a good heart. Because here's what an honest and a good heart does. An honest heart will recognize its need. You don't try to hide your deficiencies or your weaknesses. You admit it. You have to be poor in spirit, as Jesus said. The more you tell God, you know, I need thee, oh, I need thee. How often do I need thee? How often does the song say? Every hour I need thee. Why would you say you need him so much? Because you never have too much of this. You never get overrun with so much of God that you don't need anymore. You live in need. That's why you keep coming to the throne of grace because you have a need. And you can come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of need because we always need that. God is our source. We can't do anything by ourselves, can we? Anything we try to do without him doing it through us is no good. So we come to him. He says, in an honest and a good heart in Luke 8, he said, in an honest and good heart, bring forth fruit with patience. Patience. One translation said, having heard the message, keep it in the good, rich soil of their hearts and patiently yield a return. Because one of the principles of fruit bearing is that it takes time and you need patience. A better word here, endurance. There's two Greek words that are translated patience. One is the fruit of the spirit, which is slow to anger. It's dealing long with people without getting upset. It's a fruit. It's something that Jesus trains us to be like so that we're not ticked off so easily, but we bear long with people. And the other word is hupomone, this word here. It means to bear up under. It's what supports faith. You remember in uh, James chapter one, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraided, but let him ask in faith without wavering. Wavering has to do with being thrown off course. You have to endure the trials of your life, the testings of your life, the time delay. Sometimes God waits. You seem to be hopeless. You've heard all of this. You're trying to live this way. It doesn't seem to be working. Nobody's better. The wife hadn't come home. The kid hadn't changed. The job hadn't come up. The money's still gone. Whatever the thing is, and boy, you seem like it's just not working. But you know, when you plant a seed, when you plant fruit in the ground, 
God ain't going to disappoint you. Because if he gave it to grow, it's going to grow. But you just demonstrate I'm not turning back. It's endurance. It's a picture who steadfastly, and that's what this word could also be translated, he steadfastly makes his mind up to stay with what he believes. Because if you have faith without patience, it won't last long. You have need of endurance, the Bible said, that you may be able to receive what was promised. You've got to hold on. You have to endure to the very end of your life anyway. This is a trait that's lacking in so many people. We're all good starters. But, oh, man. You ever watched a marathon race? Some of you run in them. Running was to me like eating sand. A lot of people like to run. I see people running all the time, and they're, you know, once you keep doing it and get, your body gets used to it, you really like to do it. I understand that. I just never did it long enough to even like it. I grew up with coaches that hollered at me, and I had to run, and when I got out of their sight, I quit running. But when you round the corner, I remember in college, you had to run up this crazy course up into the dam and across and down through the woods and then back to the football field, up the stadium, up the stadium. It was terrible. It was just absolutely awful. And you come down, and you had to make a lap around there, and then you had to sprint to the finish line. Oh, boy. I'd do my best. I got out of sight of the coach. Just jog around. When I got in sight of the coach coming back, I was pretty fresh. I was the last one, but I was pretty fresh because I'd been walking. <laughs> well, then I started running again. He'd just yell at me, yell. You lazy. Get over. I know I'm lazy. I don't like running. I didn't come down here on a scholarship to run. I came down here to play basketball. And coaches love pain and misery anyway. But if you're going to do it right, you're going to have to stay with it. Anybody can put their hand to the plow. You can be having a bad time in your life and going through a bad season in your life and, oh, God's the only answer, and you grab that plow, and if he doesn't do something within 30 minutes, ah, it didn't work, or 30 days or two days. But you can't do it like that. You've got to put your hand on there with the idea that God who made this promise will not fail me, and I'm going to hold on in Jesus' name. And everything else looks hopeless, but you hold on because Jesus said to hold on. You've got to have patience. You bring forth fruit with endurance. Now, if tribulation is required for fruit bearing, and it is, if tribulation is required for fruit bearing and tribulation is required for patience, you can't have patience unless there's tribulation, and tribulation is part of what fruit bearing is all about, then it seems to me that many are unfruitful because they will not endure testing. Fruitless lives. Fruitless life is a person who looks for an easy way out. He's in a babyhood. I like babyhood better. It doesn't require anything. I don't have to try. I don't have to take notes. I don't have to study. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to make application for my daddy. All I have to do is go to church and do my thing, and I'm going to heaven. That's the mindset. Easy way out. Nothing has to be worked at. Nothing has to be obtained with the effort. Remember the Bible talks about those who take the kingdom by force? They seize it as a prize. And everything out there is trying to keep you from holding on. Too hard, too hot, too cold, too far, too slow. You can't. You're not good enough. You're not worthy of this. Blah, 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 blah. And anything to let go, because most people will let go. But some people won't. And the fact that you hold fast is evidence that something in you is bigger than what you're going up against out there. God in you. Patience is a fruit. It's a gift also. God gives it. It accompanies faith. Folks, not very many people are here. That I mean, they've heard all of this. This has been sounded before, but I don't think a lot of people have got a hold of this yet. Endurance is how Jesus said, we bring forth fruit. It's a struggle. But I think you look at those branches and the wind and the spring and the rain and all the winter and all the hammering and all the beating around, what we often go through, but every spring it comes out. There's apples, cherries, peaches, whatever kind of tree it is. 
There's Jesus and humility and peace and joy and long-suffering and kindness and a good attitude and quit being negative all the time and begin to be a helpful, loving person. What did John the Baptist say? He must what? He must increase, therefore, I must decrease. Would you look in Colossians 1 for me before we quit? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before, is the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is into all the world. And what does it do? It bringeth forth. Let me ask you a question. If the word of God brings forth fruit, then why don't we see more of it? Is it because the gospel has been maybe set aside or maybe treated lightly by good people? It's happened to all of us about something. It's something, you know, maybe a little bit, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So we set it aside. We just don't right now see our need for that because we take things into our own hands. Instead of letting him have his way, we say, well, now wait a minute. I don't know if I want to do that. You see, the way I've been taught, Lord, is we do it like this. What does the word say? What does this book say? Well, I can read that, but I don't know anybody that's ever done it that way. I don't know anybody that's ever believed like that. You ever heard anything like that about yourself? Oh, boy. Through the years, dozens of years, a few dozen, because you are willing to believe what God says as best you can understand it, because that's what the Bible says. People in churches think you're a cult because you're willing to believe what it says. And you turn and say, well, why don't you believe that? I had people say, why do you people not go to doctors? I say, man, a lot of them do. Are you asking me? I said, why don't you go to doctors? I said, well, because I have one. I found a better one. I haven't had a doctor's visit 40 years, I guess. I haven't been to a doctor in I don't know how many years, since maybe 1970, 69. That's a long, long time. You mean, you're the people that, and I say, time out. Did you go to church? Yeah. You're Christian? Yeah. And you don't trust God? Why don't you trust the Lord? Yeah, well, I don't know. If it, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can show you a lot of verses where he tells you to trust the Lord. Why don't you trust him? Because it just proves the point. A lot of people just don't want that to be necessary or even absolutely right. Because what would people say about you? I know what they say. I know what they think. I've been in this world long enough now that I can look back and tell you a lot of things now that I've learned. It's just the fact that once you take up this cross... And you begin to carry this cross. God will see to it that you're embarrassed, misunderstood, misquoted, slandered, libeled, talked about, whatever you call it. When you get around uh, other folks, sometimes they look at you and they go, and you can see them, they're talking about you because all about this healing stuff. I think, why is God such a bad choice for health? Why should I apologize to anybody for 40 years of good health? I'm sorry that I've been trusting God. I should be sick like everybody, but I, 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 I've been trusting God, and he's made me well. Should I do that? Should I say, you know, well, <laughs> everything we have is paid for. I'm sorry, man. I, I know I'm not supposed to live like this, but, but I just happened to believe the Bible years ago, and I had nothing. Bime's talking tonight about one trip we took years ago. Now, this is the truth. <laughs> we had enough money to get there and buy gas. We didn't have any money to get home. So they're either going to adopt us <laughs> or give us money to get home because we left believing that God take care of it. And we drove all the way down there in West Tennessee and didn't eat. And we got to these folks' house. It was, it was a doctor and his wife. And we got to their house for a big youth meeting for that weekend out in the woods somewhere. And she just baked a cherry pie. If you hadn't eaten all day long, a cherry pie ranks real good. <laughs> Bonnie said, I looked at that pie and I thought, man, I am so hungry. And I'm thinking, boy, I was too. And they said, would you like to have a piece of pie? 
Now, you're supposed to say, my mother would have told me to say no. But everything in me said, I love that piece of pie. So they offered us a piece of pie, and of course, we just <laughs> ate it. Let me close by saying this, folks. Full stature is for God to take people like us, flawed individuals, and make us to be willing to readjust our lives to somebody we've never seen, somebody we've never heard, read about in a book we can't prove that it's reliable, can't prove it, have to believe it. And to dedicate your whole life in the young folks or older folks to the loving of somebody that you can't see and adjusting your life to somebody like this and this same somebody who's God begins to conform you and change you and here we are 42 years later full of peace no fears no anxieties nothing isn't that good amen Oh, Jesus, we thank you tonight. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, quicken our hearts. Make us glad. Lead us into that place, Lord, where our desire and our hopes are all in Jesus. Work in us that good word. Let it bear fruit in us, that incorruptible seed that you planted in your people. I ask you to do all of that. And as we leave, I ask you to quicken our appetite for more of this, for more of the truth. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.